Well, let's get started. So, um, as you know, we've been going through the Heidelberg Catechism on our class. Uh, Dustin, you want to you want to join us? Or are you going to sit back there in the peanut gallery? So, <laughs> he's like, I can't believe he just called my name. <laughs> but we're so small today. I mean, come on, let's get together. We're a family. Uh, we've been going through the Heidelberg Catechism in our in our Sunday school class. Uh, one thing we wanted to do uh, as a class is go through some church history uh, once a year. Last year, we, uh, Dr. Glomsrud did a whole series on uh, uh, medieval uh, politics, kind of giving you the background of uh, um, the trials of Martin Luther and uh, the Diet of Worms and many things that happened uh, in the early uh, German Reformation. And I think the year before that, we went through uh, the ecumenical councils of the ancient church. I think I took you through that. Um, this year, I just want to do a, a few weeks on the Reformation in Italy. What happened in, on the peninsula? Um, you know, when we think of the, the Protestant Reformation, Italy is usually not the first place that comes to our minds. What are the countries that come to our minds when we think of the Protestant Reformation? Switzerland, Germany, yeah, Switzerland is Calvin, Germany is uh, Bootser and Luther, England, England has a big reformation, that's Thomas Cramner, you know, the, uh, the 39 articles, and uh, we think of the Netherlands, well, well, when we think of Italy, what do we tend to think of? Uh, we think of the Vatican, the Inquisition, uh, the Council of Trent, and yet it was the birthplace of the Renaissance. And, uh, and I'm, I'm hoping to give you a little bit of history. I know that, you know, my, my wife and I were talking about uh, our generation. I'm, I'm 46, almost 47. And our generation did not get uh, very good world history or European history growing up in, in uh, public education. And... Uh, I never knew the, the connection between the Renaissance and the Reformation. Without the Renaissance, there couldn't have been a Reformation. And so we, we want to think about some of those things, and we want to understand what happened. Also, I know that we, we tend to, to put the, uh, the birth date of the Reformation as October 31st, 1517, but it's really important that we understand that that didn't just fall out of the sky. The Reformation didn't happen, you know, one October 31st when this Augustinian monk nailed the 95 Theses. That would be way too superficial. Um, we, we tend to locate that as the, as the starting point. But many things had been happening throughout uh, the Western Church for actually centuries leading up to that point. You have something called the conciliar movement, for example, uh, that goes back to the, the 14th century, 15th century. And that is a, a struggle between... Uh, in many ways, the Pope and, uh, and bishops. There were people saying that we need to have councils have authority and not just the Pope. And there needs to be greater accountability for the clergy and for the Pope. This is centuries before Protestant reformers came along. You had many moral reformers, uh, people like uh, Savonarola in uh, Florence, who was uh, actually imprisoned and then burned to death, uh, calling for the moral reformation of the papacy and uh, the, the clergy, uh, because during the time of the Renaissance, you know, the Renaissance, you know, 14th, 15th century, Renaissance just means rebirth, and you have this renewal of interest in uh, the classics, in, in things ancient, and people going back to the ancient texts and reading them uh, in the original Greek, and this, uh, this births a, a new interest in the study of the scriptures, uh, not just to read them in the Latin that it had been translated into, but in the, its original Greek, the New Testament, and the Hebrew and the Old Testament. You have the, the invention of the Gutenberg printing press in 1455 that creates movable type so that now books can be made uh, much more quickly and they're more accessible. Uh, all of these things add to the Reformation. But you also have people uh, pointing out the, uh, the, the horrible moral conditions of the papacy and, uh, and many of the, the uh, clergy in the hierarchy, especially the cardinals, we have to understand that not every pope was evil. Uh, I think as Protestants sometimes we just assume, well, they're all the same. 
And that's not true. Uh, there, there are some that do good things, and there are some that are bad. And, but the period of the Reformation is pretty bad. And if you read a history of the papacy, something like uh, Eamon Duffy, who is actually a Roman Catholic scholar, um, a book that he wrote called uh, Saints and Sinners, The History of the Papacy, the Renaissance period is the worst. This is when you have popes like uh, the Borgia Pope, uh, you have the, the Medici family popes, you have these popes that were basically like mafia godfathers that uh, owned all kinds of things, were leaders of armies, uh, had mistresses, had all kinds of illegitimate children, and people knew about it. Uh, the Borgia Pope had uh, a mistress who lived in the Vatican with him, and he, and he was married. And he, you know, the Pope's not supposed to be married at all. And, uh, and it was just awful. I mean, it was, it was just... It, 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 it was something that everybody could recognize needed reform. So you have these moral reformers that are calling for a reformation in the church for centuries. When we get to 1517, now you have uh, a monk not doing anything new by calling for moral reformation, but also saying there needs to be some doctrinal reformation as well. There had also been people that came before him, uh, uh, forerunners of the Reformation in that regard, people like John Huss and and John Wycliffe. But what happens on the peninsula? What happens in Italy itself? Um, Next week, what I hope to do is is go into, uh, I'll have some slides since Dr. Glomsford did some slides and it seemed like everybody liked that. Uh, I've got a bunch of pictures that I think will be fun for us to look at over the next two weeks um, as we think about Italy. One thing that's important for us to understand is that uh, uh, Italy is not a unified country at this time. Italy doesn't become a unified country until the 19th century. It is just like most of Europe. It's a whole bunch of different republics. And many of them are very powerful throughout Europe and have kings and and princes and uh, nobles that... um, are leading these republics. And, but during that time of, a, of fragmentation, and, it's, and the Roman Catholic Church is the only church uh, in, throughout the peninsula and throughout Europe, uh, there begins a reformation through what we now call Italy. And mainly it comes through the city of Venice. And so, you know, if I draw a little... Uh, everybody knows that Italy's like a boot, right? Something like this. They love soccer, and so it looks like that. And then down here is the soccer ball. That's Sicily. And then also they have Sardinia. And today there's 20 different regions. Venice, uh, some of you may have been there, is way up here, right on the ocean. And Venice is an important city throughout the Middle Ages, uh, it's a merchant town, and it has a long history of opposition to the papacy. Rome is, that's a pretty awful look of uh, Italy, isn't it? Uh, something like that. Anyway, Vincenzo's from down here on the hill. Anyway, uh, Rome is right, right here in the middle. Actually, it's a little further west. Milan is up here. Um, and it has, a great op- it has uh, quite a bit of opposition to Rome, and to uh, the papacy, and it's known for being very progressive in thought, free-thinking. People often would flee to Venice, kind of the way they fled to Geneva later, um, if they were uh, considered heretical in their thinking or in a a variety of different ways. But books began pouring through Venice because you have ships coming in through here, and uh, as when Martin Luther, in 1517, uh, puts up his 95 Theses, he's not fully Protestant yet. He, it's a, it's a, a development that he has. In 1520, he writes three very important books, uh, Babylonian Captivity of the Church uh, to the Christian Nobility and on the Freedom of a Christian. And, and these books are uh, they're, uh, reprinted at the uh, printing presses, and people ha- booksellers begin popping up, but they begin pouring in through Venice and circulating throughout Italy in the 1520s. So the 1520s, so we think of 1517 when he puts the thesis up, his 95 theses up, and then the 1520s is really 
the Reformation begins to begin uh, gaining traction throughout Europe and Italy. The 1530s, it really begins to gain traction. It's during the 1530s that Calvin writes his first edition of the Institutes, and, uh, and by this time, you have some leading lights throughout Italy uh, who are reformers. Now, here's what's interesting. There are no Reformed or Presbyterian churches at that time. Again, we tend to be anachronistic. We try to take our times and read them back into history. There, there was not, you know, well, let's go in the 1530s to the Venice Reformed Church. No such thing. There's only Roman Catholic churches. And all the Reformers are Roman Catholic. They're Reformers. They're not revolutionaries. They're trying to change the problems from within. And you have uh, quite a bit uh, of uh, guys operating at that time. Peter Martyr Vermilie, uh, Jerome Zanke, uh, a very important person uh, who was actually Spaniard by the name of Juan de Valdez. And he flees Spain uh, because an inquisition had started there, moves to Naples, which is down here, Napoli, and sets up a house. And he's connected to all the different reformers. Well, by the 1540s, everything starts to go south. In the 1530s, and leading up into the 1540s, you have cardinals, cardinals in the Roman Catholic Church who hold to justification by faith alone. People like uh, Cardinal Contorini, uh, Reginald Pohl, a whole bunch of guys that are all together in this circle, uh, other reformers, Pietro Carnasecchi, uh, another guy named Marcantonio Flaminio, who was a famous poet. All of these guys are reading Luther, they're reading Calvin, they're connected to Juan de Valdez in Naples, and Contorini even is the delegate from the papacy to go to the colloquy, a, a, a discussion, at, uh, in Regensburg to try to unite Rome and Protestants. It was the last effort to try to see if we could resolve this issue of justification by faith alone. All of these Italian reformers, they had a name. They, people called them the spirituali, the evangelicals. In other words, they believed the gospel. And uh, Rome doesn't like it because they want to maintain power. Again, you have all these, I'll bring a slide that shows all the different regions, but you have all these different regions like the Republic of Milan, the Republic of Venice, the Papal States, and on and on it goes. The Kingdom of Naples is really big. And, you know, it's all politically tied and to the idea that maybe one of these republics could turn Protestant if its leader becomes Protestant, as was happening in what we now call Germany and other places, uh, frightens Rome. They could easily lose their power. And they begin opposing these guys. But it, it, it's perfectly legal during the 1520s and 1530s for them. Peter Martyr Vermili is uh, one of the most prominent Roman Catholic theologians teaching justification by faith alone, uh, sola scriptura, all of those things, as he's teaching at universities in Italy. And in universities and in monasteries especially Benedictine monasteries. You know, there's different orders in the Roman Catholic Church. You could be a, Bened a Benedictine monk, there's a, or a Dominican, or an Augustinian, or a Franciscan. But the Benedictines were known for, uh, especially the, the, a part of this group called the Cassinese Congregation, they were known for their deep theological study of uh, Paul's epistles, and they were reading a lot of the Reformers. They were reading Luther and Calvin, well, this stuff's buzzing all around, and Rome doesn't like it. And so by the, by the 1540s, things begin to change a little bit for the worse. 1541, Juan de Valdez dies. The colloquy, that same year, the colloquy of Regensburg fails to produce a union uh, between Rome and Protestants. And when that fails, in 1542 the Roman Inquisition is, uh, it begins, it's stated. The Roman Inquisition is established 
by the papal bull, Licet Ab Initio, and it's organized by a terrible cardinal who was originally one of these guys, but didn't hold to justification by faith alone. He was a moral reformer, but now he turns on all the Protestants. His name's John Pietro Carafa. Carafa is probably the most violent of all the, the popes, and it's his mission to eradicate uh, uh, Protestantism from all of Italy, from the peninsula, because he believes Rome has to hold on to this as much as they can. So in 1542 is when the Inquisition begins. That's when you have guys like Peter Martyr Vermigli and uh, Bernardo Ochino and others, they flee, they leave. They, go, they travel by foot through the Alps. You, know, you have Geneva up here, which was its own republic. And, uh, and then he ends up teaching in other parts of Switzerland and Zurich. He goes to England. He goes to, uh, over here to Strasbourg and uh, teaches there for the rest of his life and never goes back to Italy. Uh, people like uh, Francesco Turretini, if you've ever heard of Turretin, uh, he taught in Geneva. There was, that's because you, have a, you had a huge community of Italians that were now living in Switzerland, and they're still there to this day. There's a, there are Italian-speaking communities in Switzerland because they fled Italy in 1542 during the Inquisition. You basically had three options. You either uh, fled if you're Protestant, you recanted, which some of them did, like Reginald Pohl and others, and went back to Rome, or you died. And they, they killed many in 1542. The following year, and this is what I want to talk about, in 1543, a little book appears on the shelves of Venetian booksellers. It's only 70 pages in length, and it's not written in Latin. You know, if you're reading Luther, you're reading Calvin, it's not in Italian. It's in Latin, and the only way you're going to be able to read it is if you have a, a scholarly education. Well, a little book appears on the shelves of Venetian booksellers, and this book takes off like wildfire. Uh, they had long titles back then, which is really a lot of fun. And the name of this title was uh, really simple. It's uh, Trattato Ultissimo del Beneficio di Gesù Cristo Crocifisso Verso i Cristiani. Everybody got that? Uh, a most, in, in English, it's a most essential treatise on the benefit of Jesus Christ crucified for Christians. Um, it became known as Il Beneficio di Cristo, the benefit of Christ. The benefit of Christ. It was written by, nobody knows. It was anonymous. No author. It was published by the same publishers that had published Savonarola's sermons. This guy from the 1400s who was burned in Florence for calling for moral reform of the papacy. And they said in there, I have the quote here somewhere, they said, you know, basically, we, we left the author's name off of the book because we simply want people to know the content of this book rather than the author. Okay, that's maybe true somewhat. The fact is, in 1543, it was extremely dangerous to publish a book on, like this one. Because what was this book about? It was about justification by faith alone. Now here's the amazing thing. This little book, written in, Latin, in Italian, in beautiful yet very simple Italian, it, it was more successful, no, no book in Italy was more successful in proclaiming justification by faith alone than this one. It communicated clearly and powerfully the Protestant distinction between the law and the gospel with the aim to comfort weary believers who lacked assurance of their salvation. As one scholar noted, Beyond all other books, it popularized the doctrine of justification by faith in Italy and probably damaged Rome more than the sack. The sack is, you know, the barbarians that came and damaged Rome. Um, very accessible to lay people because of its size and the language it was written in. It was an overnight success. In only six years, from 1543 
1549, it sold 40,000 copies just in Venice. Now, I know we live in the day, you know, because I don't hear any gasps about that, and it's because, again, we're 21st century Westerners. Um, we, we think of, well, it sold a million copies. Okay, back in the 16th century, if you sell 5,000 copies, 5,000 copies of a book, you are like New York Times bestseller number one. You're huge. You're Oprah Winfrey status. This book sold 40,000 copies in six years. And not only that, not only that, but it was so good, it was so clear, it was translated into four or five other languages, into English, French, Spanish, Croatian, just within the first few years. It began taking off all over Europe. It was King Edward VI, favorite, who was a Protestant, favorite piece of devotional literature. And by 1546, the Council of Trent, which is now this council, Trent, Trento is uh, over here somewhere, that meets to examine the Protestant doctrine of justification by faith alone, and it's only then that Rome condemns that doctrine. They condemn this book. They say that book is condemned. And then it gets put on what they call the Index of Prohibited Books, which made it illegal to own. And they had bonfires in Naples and other places out in the piazza where they would bring Protestant books, and especially they want, above everything else, get rid of that little book called The Benefit of Christ. What is this book all about? It's one of my favorite books in the world. I've read it probably 50 times, and I have a copy of it right here. And I have a copy of it. Here's a copy of it in Italian. And here's a scholarly copy of it in the, ori the original translated English in 1545, also in French and Croatian. And uh, unfortunately, there's no good modern English translation of it, but we're working on that. We're working on that. Uh, this book was, by anyone's account, the most significant work of Italy's short-lived Reformation. Now, here's the crazy thing. We're going we're gonna to look at this book and what it was all about. But who wrote it? Well, now we know who wrote it. Nobody know, knew who wrote it back then. Rome found out who wrote it in 1567. But they didn't tell anybody. They captured a guy named Pietro Carnesecchi. If you're Facebook friends with me, you saw my profile picture for so long. I was going like this, and there was a painting over my shoulder. It's in the Uffizi. It's a painting of Pietro Carnesecchi. I'm walking through the Uffizi. I finally went to the Uffizi. Florence is my favorite city in the world. And uh, walking through the Uffizi, and, you know, looking at all the Michelangelo's and the Donatello's, and just beautiful. And lo and behold, you know, in our three or four hour, or five hour tour there, there's a painting of Pietro Carnesecchi. Nobody knows who he is. I know who he is. And I about died looking at this picture. Pietro Carnesecchi was, uh, we'll get into him a little bit more later, brilliant young scholar, fully Protestant, refuses to leave the country, and he paid for that with his life. And in 1567, he was tortured and uh, interrogated by the Roman Inquisition. And one of the things they want to know is, who wrote Il Beneficio di Cristo? Because we want him too. And he gave up the name. And he said, it's, an, it's a monk by the name of Benedetto da Mantova, a guy named Benedetto from the city called Mantova, which is not far from Milan, over here. A Benedictine monk. And he said, I read the manuscript. He was, in, he was part of Juan Valdez's Circle of Lights, all those people that were meeting down in Naples. And uh, he was in some monasteries that we'll, we'll talk about later that were uh, basically little, little discussion groups, little white horse ends of theologians, like seminaries they were almost, in different places where he studied for years and years. And uh, he wrote this little book while he was a monk, and then he gave it to a famous poet named Marcantonio Flaminio, uh, and he polished it up, 
and then they published it anonymously. Well, by now, uh, Benedetto's dead, long dead. So they put this as one of the, one of the I think he had 34 charges. I have his, uh, his trial, it's published now. And all of the charges against Pietro Carnesecchi, uh, any confessional Protestant would be guilty of. And one of them was that you believe the things taught in Il, Il Beneficio di Cristo. This is how important this little book was. That Trent, the Council of Trent, condemned it, named it by name, put it on the index of prohibited books, burned it all throughout Italy, favorite devotional piece of Edward VI, and how many of us have read it? How many of us even know about it? It's unknown today. There's all kinds of gems and jewels that we don't know about uh, because they tried to wipe it out. All right, story gets better. Nobody knows in 1567 that it's this monk. Only Rome knows, and they don't say anything about it. So the book is circulating still in English and French and Croatian, Spanish, but it's just an anonymous author. People have ideas. Maybe it's this guy, maybe it's that guy. Well, in 1855, oh, and I got to say, all Italian copies are gone. They're all burned. You couldn't find them. A after the 1560s, no Italian copies exist. The Roman Inquisition was so good at what they did, they made sure that there was, there was none in any monastery or university or on the shelves of anybody. You'd pay for it with your life if you had this book. And uh, so Italian copies are gone. An Italian copy appears in 1855 in Cambridge, England, in the library of St. John's College. Um, if you're familiar with Cambridge, you know that there are several different colleges that are part of Cambridge University. And you might say, well, how do people not know it was in the library? You've never been to those libraries. <laughs> those libraries are massive. That's why you people go do PhDs there. Our libraries are nothing compared to those libraries. They have stuff that goes, dates all the way back before the Gutenberg Press in uh, Oxford and Cambridge. You know, those are the oldest, some of the oldest universities around. Bologna, uh, Heidelberg. Well, a copy appears. And uh, this creates a new interest, a renewed interest, in Il Beneficio and who is the author. People, scholars begin to dig. In 1870, through some incredible circumstances, the trial of Pietro Carnesecchi is published. And now people know it was this guy, Benedetto. Scholars begin to dig more. Now we know some things about this guy. His name was Benedetto Fontanini. And uh, we'll go into his life a little bit, the, the little bit that we know. We don't have any pictures of him. But the book that he wrote was so good. And I want to take you through that uh, a little bit so that you can see how it's written. In 1543, if you like the Heidelberg Catechism, you're going to see how much, of the Heidelberg how much the Heidelberg Catechism owes to this book that was written 20 years before the Heidelberg Catechism. Yeah. Guilt, grace, gratitude, and so much. And who was it written by? Not Calvin. Not Luther. Nobody in a uh, Protestant church, but by a Benedictine monk who had no intention of ever leaving the Roman Catholic Church. These guys had no intention of leaving the Catholic Church, the, the spirituale. They had every intention of reforming the church from within, and they held to all the things that we hold to, and they paid for it with their lives. Um, so, what is this book, Beneficio di Cristo, the, the Benefit of Christ? What is it all about? It has six chapters. It's very short. So this is, like I said, this is a copy, and this is actually very quite large print. And uh, this also has, uh, this is in Italian. Um, it has biographical information at the beginning. But it's only six chapters, very simple. Chapter one is about our guilt before God. Benedetto starts with the bad news in order to explain the good news. Just listen how good this is. It's, so, it's very much like Luther. If you like Luther, you'll love this. 
He says, it is necessary that we first know our misery. No man will seek out a doctor unless he knows he is sick. No man will acknowledge the excellency of the physician and how much he is dependent on him unless he knows his own disease to be gripping and deadly. Even so, no man acknowledges Jesus Christ to be the only physician of our souls unless he first knows his own soul to be sick. And so what he does in that first chapter is he begins to explain the nature of original sin. Original sin being that condition that we have of depravity, that uh, our, our heart, our intellect, our emotions, our will, everything is affected by sin. And he explains how God created man after his own image and true righteousness and holiness, and that if Adam had obeyed God, he would have obtained eternal and glorified life for the whole human race uh, because he was our representative in the garden. Uh, but rather, because he fell, because he rebelled in the garden, the whole human race has been affected with the guilt and the pollution of Adam. And we've become the objects of God's wrath. So he says, uh, we are his enemies and he must punish our sins as a just judge. It is now impossible for us through our own strength to love God or to align ourselves with his holy will. Uh, that's how the book begins, uh, with the bad news, that we are guilty and corrupt sinners. If we don't know the bad news, we won't appreciate the good news. And uh, he goes on to say, Can any person perceive the excellency of Christ or how much he is bound and dependent on him if he is unaware of his own sinfulness? One must first know of the incurable condition in which he finds himself, the condition we have received through the infection of our first relatives. Then he goes to chapter 2, and he says, now how do we, how do we come to know this? And, and how do we come to know our, our sinful condition? The law of God. And so the second chapter is all about the law of God. And he says, uh, by looking at this holy law in the same way one would gaze in a looking glass, man readily sees his own great imperfection and inability to obey God's commandments. He realizes that he is unable to render to him the honor and the love which he ought to yield to his creator. This, then, is the first purpose of the law, to make sin known. This is, St. Paul affirms, and in another place he says, I have not known what sin is but by the law. So he's quoting Romans 3 and Romans 7. And he goes through a few different purposes of the law, but he says the, the first and most important use of the law is that it, it shows us our sin and ultimately drives us to Jesus Christ. So it sounds a lot like Luther here, but he's, uh, he's crystallizing it and, and making it very simple. He then goes on to tell us about the only remedy to our sinful condition. In chapter 3, he turns to what we call federal theology, the two Adams. And this is, this is where he really wins my heart over. Uh, he talks about, he, he interacts with Romans 5. Throughout the, the little book, he's interacting with Scripture, and he's interacting with the, the ancient fathers and some medievals. In, in Romans 5, uh, he explains that just as Adam was the represent, representative of the whole human race, Christ was the representative of his elect. And he says, as Jesus Christ, listen to this, this is so good. As Jesus Christ is stronger than Adam, so his righteousness was mightier than the sin of Adam. The sin of Adam was sufficient to make all of us sinners and children of wrath without any misdeed of our own. How much more shall Christ's righteousness be a greater force to make us all righteous and the children of grace without any of our own good works. Indeed, we cannot be righteous unless we ourselves are made good and righteous through faith before we ever do any good works. And of course, that's the great news of the gospel, that God considers us righteous through Jesus Christ. And this, of course, is what the Council of Trent now think about it. The Council of Trent, if you don't know, is when they, condem they condemn the doctrine of justification by faith alone in January 1547. They meet in 15, uh, I think 1544, 45, 46 is when they condemn the uh, benefit. In 47, they condemn the doctrine of justification by faith alone. This little book actually had a lot to do with how Rome reacted in the Council of Trent. Uh, th that's how important this little piece was. 
And the way that Benedetto, this monk, um, articulates um, uh, uh, sola fide and the imputation of Christ's righteousness uh, in many ways uh, helps or causes Rome to respond with this anathema. I'm reading now from the Council of Trent. Rome says, if anyone say, says that men are justified either by the sole imputation of the justice of Christ or by the sole remission of sins to the exclusion of the grace and the charity which is poured forth in their hearts by the Holy Ghost and is inherent in them, or even that the grace whereby we are justified is the only favor of God, let him be anathema, let him be accursed. In other words, if you say it's all Christ's righteousness that makes you right before God, um, let, let that person be accursed. Now, Rome has since said in uh, Vatican II in the 1960s, oh, well, Trent was really just talking about the reformers there in the 16th century, not everybody. And so, uh, because now they would say, according to Vatican II, that even we Protestants are called separated brethren and that we're not anathematized just by our belief in the doctrine of justification, sola fide, but that our baptisms actually connect us to Christ and the Holy Mother Church of Rome, and that there's enough grace in the world through the church to get us to heaven as well. We're just going to be spending more time in purgatory than uh, those who, were, who are in Rome. Um, I'm not kidding. This is true. This is, this is precise. So, you know, a lot of times Protestants like to say, well, you've anathematized me. Well, since Vatican II, they've, they've, they, have, they have tried to clarify what they meant, which is kind of, you know, doesn't really make a lot of sense. But there's, they, now they'll say, well, we only anathematize Luther and, and those who were, uh, like Benedetto, who were uh, saying these things. Of course, they didn't know who wrote Beneficio di Cristo during the time of the Council of Trent, just that it was a thorn in their side. Any, any questions so far? Who, who's that? Well, I'm not. So, like, so, Right. Okay. So, because they were they held to this doctrine. Yeah. So they didn't say anything about the doctrine of baptism. Yeah. They still hold that, that. They still hold Trent. They have to. Rome. Rome cannot reverse any uh, any council decision that they've ever made. They can't reverse it. So when they said that all of those doctrines are anathematized and the people who hold them are anathematized, in Vatican II, they said, well, people who aren't really clear about these things or you know, they, aren't, they weren't the original reformers who left the church. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't depart the church in any way uh, like the reformers. Um, they're separated brethren. That's, that's their qualification they put on that. But they would still say that Trent stands that uh, to, to hold the justification sola fide, according to Rome, is outside the scriptures and outside the teaching of the church. Um, uh, they believe that the scriptures teach that you are uh, justified by faith, but that that faith contains uh, working through love, good works, essentially. And so, yeah, yeah Angela. Yeah, yeah, that they hate it so much, right? I know it's it's scary. I mean, it, the, the, it's why would we? Rome's concern, of course, is that if you teach people that you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, that that teaching is going to lead to licentious living. That people are just going to say, "Well, I can go on sinning and doing do, living in sin, since Christ did it all." What's interesting is that that's the same. 
That, that's the same objection that some of Paul's opponents were making and that Paul assumes after he uh, lays out justification in Romans chapter 5, or actually 3, 4, and 5, he gets to chapter 6 and he says, well, what should we say then to these things? Should we continue to sin so that grace might abound? So he, he, he's anticipating somebody like, like uh, the papists who would say, um, you can't teach that because it's just going to lead to more licentiousness. Um, yeah, it's not a good argument. It's a slippery slope argument, you know. Um, slippery slope arguments never work. Well, if you, if you teach this, then you're going to end up over here. Um, that's not necessarily true. I mean, it is true that somebody could, could say, oh, well, I'm saved by grace, so I can go on sinning and doing what I want. But that's why Paul goes on to talk about the new life that we have in Christ, that because we're in Christ, we have new, we're, we're united with him, and now the Spirit begins to uh, produce fruit in our lives. And that's why the reformers, including uh, Benedetto, they have chapters, like, like the Heidelberg Catechism, on the life of gratitude that uh, is the response. And so. You would think so, right? Right. 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 Can you can you can you just post that today and uh, send that out to everybody? I think the elders would really appreciate that. Yeah. Um, no, but that's that's exactly right. I mean, um, what's the reasonable response? But to to live, you know, to live a life of repentance, because uh, like we heard today, I mean, in the, in the preaching, you know, if Christ has paid the ransom price, um, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to go on living in sin now. I don't want to do it. Christ didn't die for my sins so that I could go on living in sins. He died for my sins to free me so that I don't have to go on doing that. And that's what this doctrine teaches. And so, yes, sir. Do you, do you, I'm sorry, do you have a question? Yes, I do. Okay. Um, it has to do with the creation of the Society of Jesus and the Jesuits yeah. that were created at the Council of Trent after the Order of Dean Malay mm-hmm. um, to ruin and infiltrate the Reformation and how they're still active in doing it. There's over 25 Jesuit colleges in the United States right now that are in charge of making and changing laws based on natural law and our Constitution. What was your question? I missed your question. That the church has basically remained silent from this point in the 1500s in naming the Antichrist, being the Roman Catholic Church, as most reformers had a consensus, and now the uh, Reformed churches very rarely speak of the Jesuits and the Jesuit infiltration in the higher learning because they were the learning class, and that their main objective is to reclaim. Well, the Trent isn't, I mean, there is the foundation of the Society of Jesus, yeah, the Jesuits. And you're right, that the Jesuits, I mean, the, the Jesuits ultimately become the Roman Catholic apologists. And it's an order formed to try to eradicate uh, Christianity. And so when you, go to, you, when you go to Italy, for example, to this day, and you go to places like Milan, you find the, the great cathedral there, the Duomo, and it's that whole, that whole church, that whole cathedral was built as a representation of the power of Rome. And uh, the Jesuit society, or the Jesuit order, is used to uh, uh, combat that. I'm not quite sure what your question is. Is that taught in the seminary? I mean, we learn about the Jesuits and uh, the Council of Trent, but the, the purpose of the Council of Trent wasn't to form the Jesuits. The purpose of the Council of Trent that the, the formation of the Jesuits is just one thing that comes out of the Counter-Reformation. The, the, the purpose of the Council of Trent is to respond 
to all of the Protestant teachings in Europe, uh, primarily sola scriptura and sola fide, and, but also sacraments and several other things. So when you read the Council of Trent, which you can read today, I, I encourage you know, everybody, um, one great thing to have in your shelf, and you can get it pretty, uh, in, pretty inexpensively, is um, the Creeds of Christendom, edited by Philip Schaff. Um, CBD, Christian booksellers, uh, they will uh, sell it for you know, very inexpensive on hardback. And there you can get all the creeds and confessions of uh, the ancient church, of the Reformation, both Protestant and uh, Roman Catholic. And you can read the Council of Trent, and they got us right in the Council of Trent. They, that, they get us better than many evangelicals do in terms of justification, sola fide, and uh, sola scriptura in the things that they were condemning. But uh, just to bring it back now to Benedetto and the, and the Italian Reformation, um, what's happening it, it, at this time in the Council of Trent is a response, as I'm trying to point out, as I'm taking through the book a little bit, uh, to things that were written in this little, this little booklet. That, that's how powerful this little booklet was. Um, and again, it was written by uh, a Benedictine monk because there were a lot of people in monastery, a lot of monks in monasteries and Roman Catholic universities during the 1530s, uh, leading up to the 1540s, that uh, were, were Protestant in their convictions on how we are made right with God and, and how we are saved. Benedetto concludes chapter 3 with this pastoral exhortation. He says, My dear brethren, uh, let us embrace the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us make his righteousness ours by faith. Let us be assured that we are righteous, not because of our own works, but because of the merits of Jesus Christ. Let us live cheerfully, assured that the righteousness of Jesus Christ has utterly done away with all our unrighteousness. He has made us good, righteous, and holy before God. Beholding us engrafted in his Son by faith, he considers that we are no longer the children of Adam. He considers us his own children. He has made us heirs of all his riches, joint heirs with his Son. Now, if I read that quote to you and I said, that's from the 16th century, who would you think that was from? Maybe Calvin... Luther, right? It's from a monk in a Benedictine monastery, an obscure monk. The black monks, they called them. They wore those big black coats. If you're going to be a monk, it was Benedictine, it would be kind of cool because you get a black uh, robe. The, um, the Franciscans, not so much. You've got to wear the brown one, scratchy brown one. They're in, they're in Assisi. Yeah, the friars. And uh, they're really wacky in their, uh, their theological views. But the point is, is that, uh, not that not that the Benedictine monks are orthodox, it's just that you ha- this is what was happening at that time. It was really exciting. It, it's, it, and it's sad to think how uh, Rome squashed the Reformation. Because after, you know, after this time, the 1540s, you, there, is no, there is no Reformation in Italy. Everybody flees. So you have tons of Italians that are, are Protestants now living in... in uh, Switzerland, and there were Italian-speaking churches in Geneva at the time, as well as other places. Uh, there, was a, there was even one in England, and uh, Vermilia was you know, asked to pastor these churches. Um, you have churches beginning to form now, Protestant churches, throughout what we now call Germany, Switzerland, England, Netherlands, but Italy, pff, wasteland. And to think, again that the Lord has used even this little church to see a church planted in Milan that confesses the three forms of unity um, and that there is no other one that, that does that. Um, it, it's pretty amazing. You know, ten year, or seven years ago, when um, after uh, Andrea Ferrari was ordained here and sent back to Italy, and then I went over there and participated with him in the ordination of the first two elders of that church, and we watched them sign the form of subscription. It was moving. The form of subscription was drafted at the, at the, at the Senate of Dort in 1618, 1619. And, the, and the, I have a picture in my study of the Senate of Dort. And one guy at the Senate of Dort was from Italy. One guy. 
Diodati, Giovanni Diodati. He had lived in uh, Switzerland, you know, born and, and lived in Switzerland because his family had come from Lucca. They had fled. And now he is, uh, uh, you know, a, a Swiss Italian, and he's asked to come to the Senate of Dort up in the Netherlands, and he's the one Italian delegate who has a hand in the writing of the form of subscription. To our knowledge, no Italian officer ever signed the form of subscription until the year 2010 in Milan. That's incredible. We think, well, surely there are some denominations that have done all that. No, there hasn't been. There has been no Italian state church or you know, Italian Presbyterian church or Reformed church. And now we're there. And so there's a reason why we're making sacrifices. You know, this is, this is a, a, we're, in the, we're on the cusp of, of something happening in church history. And if we can see a, a few churches established there, and if that can happen in our lifetimes, that's not a bad thing. And now there's one in Turin over here, a little one. There's the one in Milan, and there's one down here in Perugia beginning to bud. And God willing, there'll be one down here in Puglia, where Vincenzo's from. And who are we that God would ever use a little church in Santee of all places, right? How did that happen? We didn't even go looking for this. And so we don't want to abandon uh, the people that are there and, and desire to, to be confessional. Because as we look back and see what Rome has done to this land, um, when you travel there, it's a beautiful place to visit. But all those churches are museums now. Uh, there's no place where the gospel is being proclaimed. All right, next week we'll pick up at chapter 4, and then, as I said, I'll have some slides, and we can look at uh, a few things of, the, uh, of Benedetto's life and the different monasteries he was in and the people he was connected to. But uh, I'll stop there and we'll pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel that goes out to the world. We thank you for the work that you did through servants in the 16th century. We thank you for little books that articulate your gospel so clearly, books like The Benefit of Christ. And we pray, Father, that more and more we would understand uh, our guilt because of our sin, but your grace in Christ that rescues us, and the life of gratitude that you now call, call us to live, and the way that you continue to assure us and bless us with so much. Oh, Father, we pray that you would watch over us and keep us and, and establish our faith brightly in Jesus Christ. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.